Good morning. Good to be with you all this morning. In case you missed uh, Jim's introduction earlier, my name is Jeff Lee. I'm the campus pastor uh, for RUF at the University of South Florida, and it's a privilege to be with you this morning uh, to be able to share with you and open God's Word together uh, with you this morning. I do want to be, before we get into the to the passage this morning, I want to thank you for your support, uh, for your prayers, for your partnership in the gospel. Many of you Many of you may not realize, maybe you do, that we're one of your supported missionaries at USF, and it's a privilege uh, to know that you stand behind us and that you're sending us to the campus at USF. And so we truly, truly do thank you. And one of the things that is, a, is sort of a surprise to me in this role as an RUF campus minister that I was not aware of whenever I first walked into the uh, into this position is the, I keep using the word privilege, but it really is, the, the privilege that we have of really being able to form friendships with the broader presbytery with the churches in our region. And we certainly consider you all our friends and our family, uh, truly in Christ, but truly because of your partnership with us at USF. And so it's a joy to get emails from you, to know that you're praying for us, uh, to be able to have a relationship with you. And so I do I do thank you for that. Uh, many of you prepared meals for us over the years for our students and for outreach events. And so this is also my plug that in the future, uh, there'll be more opportunities for us as we reach students for you to, to be alongside us, not just uh, not just financially, but truly to be on the ground uh, in a way that you can actually help uh, help us reach um, reach students at USF. So it is good to be with you this morning. If you'll turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 24, uh, we're going to be reading verses 13 through 35 together. You can see the title of the sermon this morning is A Passion for Christ. If I could add one thing to that, I would say the title, probably more appropriate, should be A Passion for Christ and His Word. And you'll see why I add that, hopefully by the end of this morning's uh, sermon. The two obviously go hand in hand, but we'll be considering a passion for Christ and his word from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. So I'll begin reading here in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty indeed, Mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. For we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, is it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. 
But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we gather this morning reminded from your word that truly your power is made perfect in weakness. That in our greatest uh, wisdom, even your folly exceeds that. God, we pray in the foolishness of preaching this morning that you will truly condescend to us by the power of your Spirit, that you will give us eyes to see and hearts to understand. Father, we pray that you will be our teacher, and that we will see Christ high and lifted up this morning, and that you will guide us into all truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it seems as though every generation experiences some sort of life-changing, culture-shaping event that's so significant, that's so revolutionary, that we have the ability to recall the events as if it were just yesterday. We remember exactly where we were, who we were talking with, whenever we heard the news of whatever the event is in question. For my generation, no surprise, it was September 11th, 2001. Many of us, as I see you nodding your heads, can remember exactly where you were when you heard the news that America was under attack. And in those moments as you're sort of struggling to get your feet back underneath you, life all of a sudden seems as though it has been turned upside down. What seemed right now seemed wrong. What seemed pure now seems defiled. What was once hopeful has now become hopeless. In my parents' generation, I never understood this until 9-11. In my parents' generation, I heard them talking of the story of when JFK was assassinated. And my mom recalling exactly where she was in elementary school when they heard the news that the president had been assassinated. It seems as if every generation experiences one of these types of events. As we jump into Luke chapter 24 this morning, we are entering into the aftermath of one of these types of life-changing, culture-shaping, turning-your-world-upside-down events for these two folks who are traveling on the road to Emmaus. We read it in verse uh, 13 that the two of them were going on to a village named Emmaus. In verse 14, that they were talking about the things that had happened. What had happened? We're entering into the story after Jesus had been delivered up to death, crucified, died, and buried. And the temptation for us as we gather here this morning, we know the rest of the story. We are Christians who have been to Easter and we've heard the story time and time again. We know how it's going to end. But I want to encourage you this morning to sort of put yourself in the shoes of these two travelers who don't know what's happening and who don't know what's going on. They're sort of in that moment of just receiving the news of trying to figure out what is going on. And they're probably traveling home to their home in Emmaus, leaving Jerusalem 
leaving in some ways, it seems as if they're leaving their faith behind and going home. What I want you to see this morning as we study this, as we study Luke chapter 24, is that we'll see this morning is that God's word strengthens our feeble faith by taking us straight to Jesus. God's word strengthens our feeble faith by taking us straight to Jesus. That's what Luke 24 is going to show us this morning. And so as we jump in, I want you to see first that our feeble faith is often born out of false expectations. A feeble faith, a weak faith, a faith that is faltering, that's on the verge of giving up, is often born out of the reality of false hopes and false expectations. I'm going to ask you this morning if you've ever had that experience to know what it's like to have your faith shaken to the core. To begin to question whether the truths of God's Word are real in your life. Or maybe in the life of a loved one, you're starting to, to the, the doubts that you're battling are starting to swirl underneath the surface. It's not an uncommon conversation for me to have with students on a college campus. It's one of the great privileges, but it's also one of the great challenges for students who are struggling and wrestling with their faith. And to realize that even in that struggle, they're coming out of the, a great lineage of folks in God's Word who have struggled and had doubts in their own faith as well. And that's where these two are. In this moment, on their way to Emmaus, struggling and questioning their faith. And they're coming so because of a sense of false expectations. But consider for a moment what we know from these two this morning as we read it, even in verse 19. Putting ourselves in their shoes, we can see that they knew firsthand Jesus Christ. We read in verse 19 that they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. It seems as if they know Jesus firsthand from his word and his deed. I wonder if they sat underneath Jesus teaching and preaching. Maybe they were there at the Sermon on the Mount when they heard that famous sermon that Jesus preached. Whenever the crowds gathered to hear Jesus expound from the law of the Old Testament and the people left that day and they were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not like the teachers of the law, but as one who had authority. These two on the road had heard Jesus preach. They sat under his teaching. They say that he's a man, mighty indeed. They had seen the miracles. They had watched him heal the lepers to open the ears of the deaf. Maybe, we're speculating, maybe they were there that day among the 5,000 when Jesus broke those loaves of bread and the fish and fed such a multitude of people. But here, as we gather with them, in Luke chapter 24, this great hope and faith that they had is now shaken. And they're going home. And you see it in verse 21. The false expectation and the false hope that they were battling. Verse 21 we read, that we had hoped that He was the one to redeem Israel. But we had hoped, you see how they've abandoned that, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But we've abandoned that hope. And you hear me saying that a false, a false, feeble faith, I should say a feeble faith, a faltering faith, is born out of a sense of false expectations. And they were not wrong to expect that Jesus was the one who was going to redeem Israel. That was true. But their timing was off. 
You see, they believed that Jesus was coming to usher in God's kingdom, which he did, and they believed that as he was riding that donkey down to Jerusalem on that day of Palm Sunday, that this was a victory march where Jesus was going to overthrow the Roman occupation and get rid of the occupiers and actually deliver God's kingdom on earth and establish himself as the king. And yet as they watched him march down that Palm Sunday, down into Jerusalem and down to overthrow the Roman government, and this is going to be the great show that we're expecting, what happens? Well, they watch this great leader, teacher of God, mighty indeed. They watch him be delivered up. God's Redeemer, humiliated, spat upon, stripped naked and hung on a cross. Here's God's beloved son betrayed by an angry mob. Here's God in the flesh hanging on a cross. And we have to remember that the hanging of on a cross wasn't just humiliating enough, embarrassing way to die, but it was actually the mark of being accursed by God. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And they understood that and they knew it. This was the one who we hoped was to redeem Israel. And yet we are seeing him hanging on a tree, cursed by God. We gather with them and we're not surprised when we consider it in that context that their faith is faltering and that they're going home. I think it's a good place to pause this morning and to ask where this morning you might be struggling in your faith. In a room this size, I know it's easy. I see it on the college campus so often. It's easy to sort of put on the face and come to church and shake the hands and do the deal when internally questions might be swirling. And doubts seem to be ruling the day. And often, I would argue that it's when the hope of our hearts, our faith in Christ, our hope of our hearts and the reality of our lives fail to meet up. There's such a difference between what we're hoping God will do and the reality of our lives. They're failing to meet that our doubts begin to take root. Maybe it's the discouraging situation at work as you've prayed and you've asked and you're hoping that God will show up and you're going day in and day out and dealing with the same discouragement. It's the financial struggles as we've heard the prayer so often that many of us battle. Maybe it's the same sin and temptation that you thought would have long been dead by this point and it's still the battle rages. So think of family members, it might be discouragement with children, your children's lifestyle. Children, it might be your disappointment with your parents' failure to understand at whatever point where the reality of our lives fails to match with the hope that we have in Christ, there's the danger of doubt taking hold. And yet it's at this point, in the depths of darkness, that Jesus enters into the story of these two, and their feeble faith is buoyed by God's word. That's the second thing I want you to see this morning. Their feeble faith, their struggling faith, their doubting faith, is boo- it's, it's, it's held up. It's strengthened by God's Word. I love, I love how Jesus enters this story. Right? They're walking down the road. They're on their way home. And in some sense, there's this miracle going on where Jesus walks up next to them. And in verse 16, we're told that their eyes were kept from recognizing Him. They don't know who they're with. They don't know who's talking to them. And Jesus, as he so often does, asks a question. What are you guys talking about? He knows what's going on. This would be like somebody walking up to you after 9-11. Hey, what, what, are, you guys, what are you guys talking about? That's a terrorist. That's a hijacker. Like, where have you been? 
And that's exactly their question to Jesus. They literally stop in their tracks, and you can see that they. Uh, Luke describes them as being still looking sad. As they stand still, they're looking sad. One of them named Cleopas, verse 18, says, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And Jesus answers their question with another question. Verse 19, what things? Getting them to expose the doubts of their hearts. We further see how much they're doubting. Even in verse 22, it's a little bit obscure in the English, but moreover, they say in verse 22, some women of our company amazed us. The Greek word for amaze is existemi. It's the word from where we get ecstatic. Something that's almost unbelievable. They've come to us with this amazing story. They claim that Jesus' body has disappeared and that angels have even visited him. You can hear the doubt in their hearts and in their mind. And what does Jesus do? Verse 25, he breaks into the story. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Notice twice in those three verses, Jesus is directing them to the scriptures and saying, you should have understood. Verse 25, he refers to the prophets, the prophets of the Old Testament. And in verse 27, he's referring again to Moses and the prophets, which is a code word for saying the whole Old Testament. He stops them in the middle of the road and carries out an impromptu Bible study and interprets to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, listen closely. This is, this is the turning point. This is where the rubber meets the road. And it's really sort of surprising when you think about what Jesus is doing. Let me ask you this. What would be the greatest proof? What would be the greatest proof to you that Christianity is true? That all of God's word is true and accurate and reliable? It would be the greatest proof. You see, I think at this moment, if, if I were Jesus, this is where I would undo the little blindness miracle and say, you know, ta-da, it's me, it's Jesus, I'm standing right before you, I know you're sad, I know you're doubting, but look, it's me, touch the scars. That's not what he does. He carries out a Bible study. Right in the moment of the road, he takes them to God's Word. You see, there's a danger in our lives. I struggle with it in my own life. I see our students struggle with it on the college campus. And it's the danger of believing that somehow another experience will somehow strengthen my faith. There's nothing wrong with experiences. There's nothing wrong with conferences or mission trips. What I mean by that is I hear students say something like, you know, I went on this mission trip this summer and it was great. And what I think I really need is I think I need another missions trip. I need another spiritual high. I need another mountaintop experience. And there's nothing wrong with the missions trips and the conferences and the ability to be sustained in those times. But there's a backhanded argument throughout the scripture that God's word triumphs over our experiences. Jesus takes them to God's Word. And this isn't the only place where we see this. If you have a moment, flipping your Bible over to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. 
I'm going to quote to you a couple of verses from the New Testament, but this is one that's lengthy enough that I want to take you there for you to see it for yourself. This is sort of Peter looking back on his experience of living with Jesus, doing ministry and life with Jesus. And he assures us that we have something even more certain. In verse 1 of 2 Peter, in verse 16, Peter tells us, We do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Speaking of the Mount of Transfiguration, verse 17, he says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Experience? He says, yes, we had it. We were there. And notice what he says in verse 19. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. He says we have the prophetic word made more certain. Yes, we had this experience, but it only confirms with more certainty the prophetic word of the Old Testament. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells the parable of the rich man, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, who die and are taken into eternity. Lazarus is taken into Abraham's bosom where he's comforted in heaven, and the rich man is sent into hell. And in hell, he pleads with Abraham. He says, Abraham, can you please send someone back to warn my brothers? Send someone back to warn my brothers that this is a really true reality. And what does Abraham say in response? He says, they have Moses and the prophets. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man's response, well, yeah, but if you could send back Lazarus, if they saw somebody from the dead return, then they would really believe. And what does Abraham respond? If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced that someone should rise from the dead. Throughout the scriptures, we hear this, this, this warning and this, this encouragement for us to continue to go back to God's word and to see that in God's word, we have a prophetic word more fully certain that in the day of doubt and struggle, in the day of unbelief, what we need is God's word. What we need is God's word to continually sustain us and to strengthen us and to bolster our faith day in and day out. Yes, the conferences are great. Yes, the mission trips experiences are amazing. But at the end of the day, we have God's word. And that's all we need. Now, the objection at this point might be, well, if you have God's word and it's more, it's so clear, how come so many don't just hear and understand? And this is where we would say the doctrine of sin has affected our hearing. But it takes the ears of faith, it takes the spiritual eyes to hear and to see and to understand, to plead and to pray with our unbelieving, for our unbelieving friends and neighbors that they would hear and understand. I don't know if you remember this story from a few years ago. A group of psychologists cooked up this idea where they talked to uh, one of the world's greatest violinists, a guy named Josh Bell, and asked him, they said, you know, here's here's our experiment. We want you to go and play in one of the subways. I think it was in Washington, D.C. They said, we want you to go play in one of these subways, open up your case, and play your violin, and see if anybody recognizes who you are. 
Now, what you have to know, I'm not really a huge music person myself. Josh Bell had just sold out some of the greatest symphony halls in the prior months. I think it was like the Baltimore Symphony Hall and the Boston. Some people who were paying hundreds of dollars to come and watch him play. And he hears this experiment and he thought to himself, this sounds actually really fascinating. So he went down for a little reconnaissance work and played his violin and said, you know, actually the acoustics are really good. And so he said, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right. And he took his, one, I think it was like a $1.2 million Stradivarius violin, his personal violin, went down into the subway, opened up his subway case, or opened up his violin case, and began to play one of the most complicated, difficult, violin solos that's ever been written. He played, I think it was for almost an hour, an hour and a half. As hundreds and thousands are walking by the world's greatest violinist, playing a violin on one of the world's greatest instruments, playing music on one of the greatest instruments. And in the course of an hour and a half, he collected $32. Only two people stopped, I think it was, for longer than two minutes to listen to him play. You see, God and his word tells us, see, the problem wasn't his playing. The problem was the ability to hear. And God has called us in his word that he has given us a word that's more fully certain than any experience that we'll ever have. And it's only through faith that he opens our eyes by the power of the Holy Spirit to hear and to understand and to rest in the reality of God's word. Even more fascinating, and we don't really have time to jump into this in its fullness, but even more fascinating to me in this passage is that Jesus is telling these men, if you had known your Old Testament, you should have known all of this was going to happen. You see, we always think of going to the New Testament for its clarity. Fair enough. It is clear. But Jesus is saying the Old Testament was clear enough. You should have understood and you should have known because it is speaking clearly to the, to the things that you have experienced in these days. But Jesus comes into their lives. He intrudes in their lives on this road to bolster their faith and to turn them to God's Word. And the final moment that we see is not just that God's Word bolsters their faith, but they themselves actually move from this fledgling, feeble faith to a heart that's invigorated with passion for Christ. They turn to a heart invigorated with passion for Christ. And here's the question, when did this happen? What changed? Yes, it is true that at some point as they convinced Jesus to stay with them, that yes, he broke the bread, and yes, there's something sort of mysterious in that moment of him serving, it seems, the Lord's Supper to them, that it was almost maybe hearing Jesus speak the words that their eyes were open and they understood. But notice verse 32. As Jesus disappears, they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? You see what's happening? They're looking back and saying that on that road, that's the moment that things started to change. When he was teaching us, when he was opening God's word, man, our hearts were burning, weren't they? And we knew there was something more going on to this story. And it was the power of God's word to change them to bolster their faith and to turn them. I think it's one of Jesus' greatest, um, significantly great, uh, compassionate thing to do for them. I think if they just had the experience of what we saw Jesus, it would be very easy the next day or the next week or a month from now or a year from now to really start to question and to doubt. Do we, do we really see Jesus? Is it really Him? Are we wrong about that? 
Now what Jesus has done is he's given them God's word and he's given them the ability to go back and to study those scriptures again and to cross-check uh, them with the facts of Jesus' life and to be encouraged and renewed in their faith. Not just the experience, but actually with God's word and the effect in their life is immediate. Now, if you noticed in the beginning of the story, it says that they're walking to Emmaus, and it was a seven-mile journey from Jerusalem. And by the time we get to verse 28, well, they're drawing near to the village to which they're going, and they convince Jesus to stay. The day is almost over. The night is coming. It's not safe to travel at night. But in verse 33, we see, after Jesus is gone, and after they're convinced, verse 33, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together. In that moment, they say, we're going back. Seven mile journey at night, dangerous, doesn't matter. God's word has given them an incredible passion to go back and to share with others the hope that they have found in Christ. And they go back immediately in that hour. You see, we truly do believe that God's Word is living and active and it works in our hearts and our lives to transform us. Not just the external behaviors, but truly the internal motivations of our hearts. It judges our thoughts and our actions, our beliefs and our hopes. In her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, if you haven't read that book, you need to. The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. It's written by a lady by the name of Rosaria Butterfield. She was a professor at Syracuse uh, one of the leading researchers in the field of uh, gay and lesbian theory, she herself was a self-proclaimed leftist lesbian until she was confronted by a pastor and started to study God's word. And in her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, she tells her story of converting from unbelief to faith in Christ, from unbelief to faith in Christ. And she asks the question, how did the Lord heal me? How did the Lord heal me? The way he always heals. The word of God got to be bigger inside me than I. Isn't that a great quote? The Word of God got to be bigger inside me than I. And she went on to say, do we really believe that the Word of God is a double-edged sword? Cutting between the spirit and the soul, or do we use the Word of God as a cue card to commandeer only our external behavior? If nothing else this morning, I want to encourage you Perhaps you've grown fatigued in your study of God's Word. We kind of get into this season of the year and we're looking forward to the summer. Yes, students, summer is coming. And I know you're excited about it. And there's that ability to sort of put things on cruise control or to shift into neutral. Don't put God's Word in neutral. Don't shift in your thinking of your study of God's Word, of taking it and reading it. As you struggle in your faith, maybe even this morning, as the doubts might be ruminating, will you take God's Word and study it and read it? Not just one day, but to commit to it. I always tell my students, it's like, you can't come to me and tell me you tried to work out once and you really didn't see any changes in your life. You have to commit to working out to see a difference, right? Or I tried to diet for one day, I didn't lose any weight. I'm giving that up. No, you've got to commit to it. And I challenge them to say, commit to God's Word. Give it six months. Let's sit down and study it together. And see what God will do in that time. If you come to Him by faith, expecting Him to show up by the power of the Spirit, not in your own strength, but trusting Him to show up and see what God will do in that time. Knowing your pastor as well as I do, he would be ecstatic for you to ask him, can we spend a few months together? 
reading God's Word, studying it together, what a privilege that would be. In her book, The Hiding Place, I was reminded of this in preparation for this sermon. In her book, The Hiding Place, written by Corey Tim Boom, another book, two plugs, that's all I'm going to plug this morning. If you haven't read The Hiding Place, you need to read The Hiding Place. Now, Corey Tim Boom was living in Holland during the days of World War II and worked in her father's uh, watch, uh, watch uh, repair shop. And as the Nazi occupation of Holland began to take hold, she and her family became convinced that they had the ability to start to hide the Jews and the Christians in their city, people who they knew and people who they loved. And so they created the hiding places in their houses to protect them during that time. As you know, and as you can imagine, as the story unfolds, Corey ten Boom herself is finally arrested by the Nazis and sent to a concentration camp, to Ravensbrück concentration camp. We estimates vary, but they believe that probably over 100,000 women were killed in this particular concentration camp. Corey ten Boom tells the story of arriving in the barracks, a place that was probably at best could hold 400, but her building held 1,400. She said they only had eight toilets for 1,400 people. The medical supplies were few. Food was scarce. She said a meal each day would maybe contain a potato and some thin soup, and that was all they had to last through the day. To top it all off, when they climbed in bed that first night, they realized that their beds were covered with fleas. And the women were packed like sardines on these beds, trying to sleep at night as they were grueling uh, work was carried out by these Nazi concentration officers. And in a place like this, you would think, what hope is there? But one of the women had smuggled in a Bible. One of the women had smuggled in God's Word. And she writes that as they gathered together each night, they would read God's word together, and she writes, These services were like no others, these times in Barracks 28. At last, my sister or I would open the Bible. We would translate to German, and we would hear the life-giving words pass back along the aisles in French, Polish, Russian, Czech, back into Dutch. There were little purviews of heaven these evenings beneath the light bulb. But now we'd know again that in the darkness, God's truth shines most clear. Brothers, I want to encourage you this morning, my friends, as we struggle in the darkness of our lives, truly Luke 24 is pointing us to see that God's truth, His Word, shines most clear, even in the darkness of our lives. Let me pray first. Our Lord and our God, we do gather this morning and we are thankful that you have not left us or abandoned us or forsaken us. Truly, you have indwelt your people with your spirit. And even so, Father, truly you have given us your word. God, we pray that we will do well to pay attention to your word, to take it and own it, to place our faith in Christ as it points us to him. God, I pray for those this morning who might be weary in their faith, struggling to hang on, that you will bolster them and encourage them. For whatever season of life that we find ourselves, God, we trust that you will meet us, even where we are this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.